by Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and even strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution, as these podcasts will feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on TAP, we have Halloween, starring Jamie Lee Curtis and Donald Pleasance, directed by John Carpenter. Welcome back to Rye Smile Films. Today we're closing yet another film review cast, the Slasher Film Starter Pack, and we're ending with the big one, Halloween from 1978. Uh, we just actually finished watching it. Uh, in moments the, ago. Moments ago. It was, a, it was a fun watch. But, you know, to talk about what we see visually that we're going to kind of put here into the podcast. Again, Matt. God, I'm, my hand's pretty heavy on these pores. Yeah, 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 yeah. Give me, give me, even me out too. There you go. Golly, I, I don't know what's wrong with me. <laughs> there you go. But this is going to be a fun discussion. You know, like as as we've kind of d- discussed, this is like a monumentally important film for myself, but also for horror just in general. So I think we're going to get into a lot of that. But yeah, cheers to that, man. Cheers, Jesse. Excellent. Get started. It's going to take a while to finish this one. <laughs> it's a good thing it's good. Mm-hmm. Oh man. Otherwise, that'd be a slog. <laughs> Don't do that on the Rocket Podcast. Yeah, that's two very aggressive pours in the last two weeks. <laughs> excellent, <Yeah>. excellent. <laughs> so let's kind of just get started because I think we have a, we're going to have a ton to talk about. So Halloween has a very iconic film poster. Yeah. You know, it's the jack-o'-lantern with the final visage being this, this knife. And I don't know if you've ever noticed this, Matt. We actually have the poster in the room where we're recording right now. But have you ever noticed kind of like the face looking up? With the mouth and the nose and the eyes and the fist. Oh, yeah. I don't know if that's intentional or if I'm just seeing that, but... No, right. That's haunting. Yeah. I often find myself in this room when we're recording the podcast looking at that poster. It is terrific. I love the ripples on the pumpkin Mm -hmm. that sort of are the effect of his knuckles on the knife. The sharp way the Mm jack-o'-lantern... Ends and those spikes matches the knife. Like yeah. it's a really great, yeah. great movie poster. And the tagline, "The night, the night he, he came." Yeah, home. with that emphasis on the he. Yeah. So, kind of thinking about horror is a great genre to do great poster art. So, the flight for this week. What are your top three horror film posters? Go ahead and start with number three. <laughs> I'm gonna bring up a movie poster for a film that you know, is, I don't want to say controversial because it's not for you and I, but mm-hmm. one that we've sort of discussed in, in some strange ways. I really think the Rosemary's Baby poster mm-hmm. is quite good. Oh, yeah. Um, we can get into the film, and maybe we should do that film someday oh, since yeah, yeah. we've talked about it so much yeah. now. But, I mean, I, I don't know. Just, uh, I, I think that's a cool poster. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, the visage. I'm not going to talk about it because it actually ended up on my list, too. So I'll mention a little bit more okay. with that. But great, that's it's a very iconic poster. Yeah. My first one is actually from a little kind of it's a, a a decent slasher film, I think eighty one, but just the image itself is just so shocking. So Matt, here it is. This is from Happy Birthday to Me. Ooh. Yeah, is that a kebab in his mouth? Yeah, it's a kebab in his mouth. Awesome. So it says John will ev- never eat shish kebab again. And Stephen will never ride a motorcycle again. Greg will never lift weights again. Who's killing Crawford High's snobbish top 10? At the rate they're going, there will be no one left for Virginia's birthday party alive. Happy birthday to me. And just I always remember there's shish kebab going in this. And it's a scene from the film. But yeah, you see that. And it's just 
instantly just like your eyes are kind of drawn to it. I'm actually surprised they were actually allowed to maybe hang this poster in the theaters. It's pretty graphic. It's, it's graphic for the most part compared to some of the others, but I think I picked it purely for the shock value of it all. So happy I, birthday to me. Interesting thing about that film, I, I, I don't think you've ever seen it. 1981, it's directed by J. Lee Thompson. Uh, oh, wow. Cape Fear. Yeah, Cape Fear. Yeah, so he kind of made his foray into slasherdom too. So. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Number two, Matt. Uh, a movie I don't think either one of us have seen. Oh. But I want to show it to you. At least I haven't seen it. I don't think you have. It's mm-hmm. that one. Curse of the Werewolf. <clears throat> I think that's Hammer Horror, yeah. So, pretty B-list movie. Uh, essentially, we have a werewolf with uh, a maiden <laughs> in yeah. a red gown sort of being fireman carried, or in this case, werewolf carried across some rather gothic-looking graveyard with an angry mob of torches below him. I just think that's a really cool-looking poster. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, werewolves are a mm-hmm. troubled franchise. I think we've gone over that a lot, but that movie poster isn't. There's something, have you ever seen this film? I have, actually. Oh, yeah. That's okay. yeah. Hammer Horror. Oliver Reed uh, plays yeah. Uh, the, yeah, the titular werewolf. The Hammer films are very interesting. They're so gothic in nature, but like really started to push the gore a little bit. Mm-hmm. And it's that like painty red gore. Yeah. But there's something, there's a nice aesthetic to like a hand-drawn poster like that. Uh, no, I think that, that that's a great choice. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, I don't think I've ever seen that poster before for that. So, mm, excellent. Mm-hmm. Okay, number two for me. I've talked about this film at least probably at nauseum the last two, three months. But again, it's The Descent. But just kind of look at like the oh, I know. composition of the, these girls kind of forming this like skull. With their feet or making the eye or the the teeth and it's kind of just glowing behind them. And then like, so normally you'll have like your cast and credits below your title. So it's actually the border around uh, the poster. It's awesome. Yeah. So. I'm actually surprised you don't own that for as much as you love that movie. I, I, how I pro- great that is. I probably should. Yeah. That's, it's just, it, that's a great, great image, like related to the film, but then kind of not quite. Yeah, I really, I really like this one. There's another great one we've talked about Armando on the podcast mm-hmm. before, of um, you know just kind of taking great ideas and kind of you know doing just unique poster work design. They've done a descent one with the girls are climbing in the cave, but the cave like itself interior is actually one of the creatures. But he's drawn to be cave-like, so they're, like, climbing down him. That's cool. Oh, it's really cool, and it's, like, all slimy and gross. Yeah, that'd be a pretty good one. Mm-hmm. So that's number two for me, The Descent. Good. I love it. Mm-hmm. It's fine. Number one. Number one. I spit on your grave. So this is uh, the tagline. This woman has just cut, chopped, broken, and burned five men beyond recognition. So sort of in the vein of Last House on the Left, mm-hmm. uh, the vengeance horror film. I don't think that movie lives up to the movie poster. It's just so raw. It's this woman in a tattered gown from behind, a uh, little booty cheeky, but nothing that's like um, too too revealing. Too revealing, yeah. uh, but certainly not pretty. Mm-hmm. Um, a knife, and the, what I love about the knife on that is she's almost kind of holding it more by the blade than she is the handle. Yeah, yeah. Uh, She's kind of cut up and torn up and dirty. And my entrance to that film came back to, I think I was maybe 11 or 12. Mm, Wow. And I had a bunch of friends over one night for a a horror 
yeah. slumber party birthday thingy. Okay. And so my mom took us to the video store, or me to the video store to pick out a couple horror movies. But because my friends were coming over and my mom was my mom, I couldn't get anything that wasn't PG-13. Okay. So I was reduced to like some terrible Dracula and some Elvira film, which were just okay. um, the house that bled to death. I think might've been the other film that we got that <laughs> night, which is just That's funny. absurd. Yeah. But I remember seeing that movie poster in the horror section of Video Visions of all the places, mm. the name where we went. Mm-hmm. And ever since then, I've really, really found that to be a great movie poster. Yeah. There's lots of other ones. Oh, we, yeah. And then we could have made a list of 10. Oh, yeah. Um, but oh, yeah. Today, in this moment, I think that's going to be my number one. Yeah, I'm kind of with you today. Like today, this is like my list yeah. because could have included such greats as Alien, The Exorcist, oh, yeah. Fright Night. Fright Night has a really great one. Um, yeah, it's like the the in the Face sky, above the, yeah, yeah. the house with yeah. like there's like a silhouette in the top bedroom. Yeah, really like that one. But number one for me, you already mentioned it. It's Rosemary's Baby. Like, just like look at that. I know. I think this is when like film posters like started to use like actual the actual visage of the actors in it. They weren't like hand drawn, like you know, like a lot of them were. And there's just something we talked about that on the top ten list on like how perplexing Rosemary's Baby is in a lot of lists and things. Mm-hmm. But the dark cavernous void here. With the black carriage and then Mia Farrow like up here with and this green hue and then like what's I don't think the tagline's on on here I think but there's a there's one version with the tagline that says like this is Rosemary's baby like something like pray for her or something mm-hmm. I I love I love that image on that on that poster there's something eerie about that carriage on like the top of that hill right there well I mean the fact that it's green and it's almost a seed that's planted inside her mm-hmm. if you want to get into the metaphorical breakdown of a poster it's sort of absurd but uh-huh. uh, yeah it's I mean yes that's I think why that's, it's on my I, list I, that, that's one of, I think that's one of the best film posters ever actually one of the things that's also tricky about this is what version of film poster do you want to use because most movie posters are not just one release there's several images oh yeah have you ever seen the one that's that movie poster? Which is the carriage against the white backdrop? I have, yes. yes that, I mean, that one's really good. That's one I was thinking of too. But that other one, I don't want to put two from the same movie. Two on from my the list. same movie, yeah. And then, how did we not put Jaws on this mm-hmm. list? Jaws, the iconic image of of the shark. Yeah. So there's like a difference between like the teaser image, which is usually what they roll out yeah. like months in advance, and then before a couple months before the movie, you get like the theatrical one sheet. And yeah, you kind of get variations. When you're a film like Halloween and you're barely skirting by on your budget, you're getting one poster. One poster. But actually, let me let me back that up because when the films do get released internationally, sometimes you get a variation on the poster. So the the more um, I'm struggling with the words here. The the poster of Halloween that's actually worth the most money isn't this one here. It's actually this one. Oh, wow. I've actually never even seen that. It's yeah. an image of him looking over the staircase. I guess I'm assuming at Laurie in the mm-hmm. film. Yeah. I want to say that's the Australian one sheet for the poster. I might be I might be mistaken on that. But, yeah, that's the one that goes for a pretty pretty nice penny. You know, this is a, another aus, interesting Australian one, if I'm not mistaken, is the one for Psycho. Have you ever seen that one? Oh, yes. Uh-huh. With putting on the stock. Um, it's Janet Lee. Mm-hmm. Kind of a perfect sequel. Like oh, yeah. Segway into this, right? Oh, yeah. Janet Lee mostly stripped down mm-hmm. in just her stockings. Mm-hmm. 
what a very odd depiction for that film. Although that's how the film starts. That's really not what that film's about yeah. at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're probably able to push it a little bit more because their censorship like code is a little more lax than like 1960s sure. Hollywood. So they're able to push the envelope a little bit with their images. Kind of a greenish, purplish tint, like uh, color hues to it. Yeah, um, yeah, that's a very interesting one too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let us. Yeah, let the, that's that's the list for today. But like, yeah, hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, or email. Let us know what your. We left a lot on the table. Like, oh yeah, I know you love that paranormal poster. The, the, the two of them with the demand it. Like head. that's pretty great. And I know I we bashed on Blair Witch, but that picture of of her there with like the woods in the back. That's pretty great as well. Mm-hmm. So I think you just like it's you can sell with an effective um, horror poster. I think you can just sell the film that much more. Right, and sometimes bad horror films actually need that to to their advantage well i still even today enjoy walking down the halls of the movie theater and looking at the movie posters oh yeah and i'm not gonna lie there's it's still effective because i haven't seen all the trailers Mm -hmm. and there's many a time Mm -hmm. i'll see a movie poster which will then drive me to youtube to look up the trailer yeah what is that still a very effective marketing campaign and if you think Mm -hmm. about it Maybe even more so now as we live in kind of immediate, quick, six-second mm-hmm. Vine type of marketing oh, yeah. schemes. Mm-hmm. I mean, what's shorter than a quick look at a movie poster? Yeah. And if it's done well, man, I'm very interested. Yeah, the, the trick is to get them, hook them with an image that's almost like they did this for Batman 89 too. Like an image with like, that's just the bat symbol with no title or a date. It's just that. Yeah. And you almost have to kind of look at it like... What is that exactly? Mm-hmm. And then, so then it starts cranking in your head. I think those posters are actually some of my favorites. So obscurity, um, done mm, subtly, subtly, yeah. Not so obscure that it doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. Is key? Oh yeah, I think so too. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. So oh, this, we're off to a great start here. Uh, well, let's get right to it. Let's get to happy hour time and let's let's dive right into Haddonfield, Illinois, for our review breakdown of Halloween. Halloween starts out with a pumpkin against a black background. And we immediately have to address what starts the film, which is this iconic, iconic film score by John Carpenter himself. Uh, Tinny piano? Yeah, piano synthesizers, like all all the works. He composed the entire score in three days, which I find just fascinating. Like Like, a lot of this film, the rapidity, which the rapidness Mm -hmm. is rapidity, the rapidness or the the quick manner in which it was all put together. 20 days. Truly remarkable. 20 days film shoot. Fade in to fade out. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's, yeah, that's... Unheard of. Yeah, today you spend like, well, it's different with like a big film like... Star Wars or Endgame, and that where they're making the movie for like two years practically. Like they're they're making it, they're editing it, they're doing the music because the film's coming out. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You got to get it. But like this music, not since like maybe like that I can think of, like Star Wars. Like the film starts out with that like that that just percussion of of brass that like it really sets the tone of the film. I think we're starting out like Friday. We had that opening bit, and then last week we had Freddie making his glove. Uh, here we're just watching this pumpkin. We're just totally getting in the mood and setting the tone with this piano and these octave changes on the piano. I think it's very effective um, throughout the film, actually. Mm-hmm. 
So we get right to it. We get to our opening scene, our inciting incident of sorts, and it's Halloween 1963, the Myers house. Uh, I think I mentioned to you earlier the first thing that always jumps out at me uh, with Halloween compared to a lot of horror films just in general is uh, the the scope that it was filmed in. I think I mentioned to you they're using the widescreen 235 ratio and Carpenter has always kind of said because Escape from New York, The Fog, uh, all these films that had such nothing budgets that like a way to kind of stretch that budget and make it seem more than it really is is to, you know, give it that like theatrical presentation and that's different than what we've seen last week you know those films seem more condensed you know kind of a little closer we're seeing everything like pulled back and stretched out a bit like uh, the, the we were voyeurs so much in this in this film and we're getting it right from the get-go here so with the rebels on the backlot idea that john carpenter is playing with in this film and mm-hmm. the grace of mustafa akkad to give him what a quarter of a million dollars a little less to make this yeah. yeah 325 okay no. so 325 mm-hmm uh, and to you know, God bless Mustafa Akkad, rest his soul. Oh yeah, uh, that's the president of Trancus that was the financier in this film. Mm-hmm. The you, boy, you and I could tell some stories about Trancus too, couldn't we? <laughs> we can. What's been so close for us in Trancus over the course? Maybe we'll do that someday. In Trancus, yeah, there you go. But not today. Uh, to take little techniques, camera mm-hmm. tricks, or techniques uh-huh. to trick the audience into a more cinematic experience than what you're actually. Mm-hmm experiencing is i think the space where carpenter for me Mm -hmm. is most successful that's why he's always worked for me too as he gets a larger budget i think some of the creativity and tricks and i mean that in a respectful way that he might used or had used in the past get washed away by the presence of a larger budget oh yeah and you lose some of the carpenter-esque-ness yeah in a film he's Uh, better mm -hmm. with less oh yeah well, oh, boy, have we have we said that a million times on this podcast? Where there's less, there's more. Less yeah, more, that's huh? like that should like be on our gravestones. <laughs> but uh, no, I, that's a perfect summation of Carpenter in a nutshell. Like when he has less, like I think he's allowed to create this effect of a film through the cinematography, the music, the lighting, and he's giving you more than's actually there because this is just a freaking street in Pasadena, California. But man, it's this house is just so haunting right from the get-go and then we mentioned uh uh steadicam during the shining this is a couple years prior to that i think it had just been invented like 75 76 Mm. and man it's just such a natural glide i mean filmmakers now could take such a a a hint from these films because it's now it's just so shaky cam where you're nauseated you can't even focus on anything especially in action films yeah oh the moving camera in the middle of the action sequence is my biggest pet peeve in film currently Mm -hmm. just stay still so i can see what's happening yeah just let me see what's happening because when i'm able to get focus i can get emotionally invested in what's taking place um and which is what's happening here we have this very long tracking shot through the house uh without cutting there's there's two cuts in, in there to kind of because because they're filming on film and they're running out of real so they had to have clever cuts and ones when he puts that mask on right but here we got judith and uh, his young uh, younger sister with her boyfriend who's come what, is, what did we joke like you said three pump pete i'm just gonna say he went in 
one pump done. I'll, I'll see you later kind of a thing. Like, not even three. Like, Jesus. So we start off, Michael kind of watching them through the window. And by the time he's walked to the back door, yeah. not the guy's, like, not even getting out of bed. Like, he's fully dressed on the stairs out the door. Yeah, I'll see so you. So I'm sure that was a satisfying encounter for Michael's sister. Yeah. Um, but we're making light of, I think, a really iconic sequence. Or making think- fun of a really iconic sequence, which is... You know, the first death in 1963 that Michael's yeah. going to be involved in. Why don't you kind of set the scene here with what, what we were talking about? Because there's a lot going on here. I think we open up maybe in the backyard or the front yard, some exterior shot yes. looking through the window mm-hmm. of a young woman and her boyfriend essentially kind of making out. Yeah. And then we hear, let's go upstairs, mm-hmm. which is obviously from the get-go an opening to, I think, once one of the big themes in this movie which is sex. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I don't think that's foreign to anybody in the slasher genre, but it's really, I think, heightened or played out effectively in Halloween. Okay, so as we are in a first-person POV point of view, we sort of circle the house and then come into the house as boyfriend is walking down the steps and heading out the door, and then this person goes up the stairs and we find... Mostly naked girl sitting at her vanity combing her hair. Mm-hmm. And then we go about hacking her with some butcher knife. Mm-hmm. Now, we never leave the first person POV. Oh, yeah. And it's between, it's from the mask. Yeah, mask holes. To eye holes. Mm-hmm. And then we head outside to where our killer's revealed as mom and dad arrive. And it's a seven-year-old boy mm-hmm. in a clown costume. Clown costume, yeah. Who's holding a knife in an almost comatic state. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I have some stuff to say about this, but I'll let you run with it for a minute. No, yeah, it's just, yeah, just from, just kind of going from the, this one shot, I think, you know, now we know it's young Michael, but I think maybe around, like, your first viewings and having little to know with the film, you probably might not know, like, the age of who this assailant is. And I think it is a bit shocking when we're unmasked and we pulled down, again, low budget, this great crane shot of the entire street as the parents kind of watch it. What what happened here? They're just like stunned. Yeah. But as we kind of talk, and I don't want to steal your thunder because I want you to say what you said when we were watching it was, you know, this is Michael's first visage or reaction to acts of a sexual nature. Yeah. And at such a young age, it's has to be confusing for him um but then kind of kind of like what we talked about is michael so angry because he sister was going to take him trick-or-treating and she decided to shack up with this boy and then he's taking it to like the the next degree here um maybe not quite understanding the implications of his actions right yeah Oh, okay. So yeah, yeah. it's going to come up again. So maybe we, we'll, we'll come back to this, this theme here. Here's, a, here's my one thought. Mm-hmm. Why would this young boy choose to do in his sister? Mm-hmm. He's obviously got to be upset about her or upset with her. Mm-hmm. And about the only evidence we have that would back up this reaction from Michael would be that he is in a Halloween costume and it's on Halloween night and mom and dad aren't home. So if you add one, two, and three together yeah that seems to equal she was probably supposed <clears throat> yeah. to take him out for trick-or-treating yeah, that's a good so he's mad that he didn't go trick-or-treating in the eyes of a seven-year-old that's a pretty big deal oh yeah to the audience that's an adult you're like give me a break but it's not from our point of view it's his yeah so 
he, in order to get her attention, mm-hmm. in a vengeful and later repressed way, I would argue. Yeah. I, I'm not trying to sound perverse here. Yeah. He penetrates her mm-hmm. with the only penetrating embodiment that he has because he's only seven. Yes. Yeah. So he does her in. In repression and revenge and reaction, and I could make up a whole another alliterated list of mm-hmm. R words because he's pissed off. And then when he finishes, he's almost stoic mm-hmm. in this particular way. In a you said this earlier, and I really like the use of this word, mm-hmm. a post-coital state. Mm-hmm. So his progression or his growth has essentially stalled out, mm-hmm. not only on Halloween because he didn't get to do what he wants to do, yeah. but in a sexual manner and an attempt to get her attention, mm-hmm. which would be through sex. But yeah. he's unable to do that or unable because he's a seven-year-old. And I also think in an, it stunts his growth, too, in an intellectual manner, too. For sure. I think he remains in this headspace for most of his life. The, atti- the stabbing or the penetration of her to get her attention in the only sexual uh, probing device he has being a knife yeah. is, I actually think that's quite smart mm-hmm. and pretty a pretty heady space to start a murder off with a film yeah. that a lot of people might have dismissed. Yeah. And that's just the beginning it's of, just, I yeah, think, what's Our inciting in incident, film. yeah. Kind Literally. of setting us off on, on our path here. Yeah. So then we jump ahead to 1978, uh, and we're introduced to Dr. Samuel Loomis, played by Donald Pleasance, yeah. and um, and uh, uh, this nurse played by Nancy Stevens, mm-hmm. who she's actually she's returning to the, the the sequel that they're currently in production with as well. So that's so cool. They're bringing like these these old faces back uh, to kind of like kind of see where they're at here at these states in their life. Dr. Loomis is a very interesting character, and we were kind of making like little asides about him when we were joking. But this is a man here that is so involved with the psychology of the human mind and what he's kind of seen in this six-year-old boy now, 22, 23, 21, uh, maybe, that they're at this part where they're, they're going to be transferring him, and he's just so uneasy about the whole thing. He's just... I, I, I mentioned to you, uh, Loomis is like uh, at an 11, like like psychosis, this entire film. Mm-hmm. There's like nothing below that and nothing above. <laughs> he's just like so intense the entire time, mm-hmm. yelling at everybody, telling everybody that the evil has escaped and is like uh, on the loose. And you know what? For we, We've mentioned in, in, in past about the authority figures can't be turned to because they they're don't worthless. believe, they're worthless. I almost want to say that Donald Pleasance as Loomis doesn't fit the authority model because even when he's going on on his ramblings about how bad this thing is, no one believes him either. Yeah. So he's kind of insane in the same line with our with Lori later on in this film. Sure. So it's just an interesting observation. But man, again, like low budget, we get this big rainy thunderstorm, and you said like just so creepily that the 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 the, the visage of the insane asylum individuals just kind of walking in the background yeah wandering like in their own headspace like that's that's nuts like (laughs) to further your inability of an adult to come to any consequential decision that matters in the film i love what the nurse says Mm -hmm. it's in the middle of this torrential downpour Mm -hmm. and here are all these white gowned weirdos just sort of wandering around and her comment to loomis is 
Since when did they let him start wandering around? No, like not the rain. Mm -hmm. Like any normal human would be like, what in the hell? Yeah, what's happening? Hers is, that's weird. When did they start letting him wander? And and Loomis, to his credit, from the first interaction that he has with this nurse in the car, he's already done with her. Yeah. (laughs) She's just an abject moron. Mm -hmm. And he's a weirdo, so we have quite a pair to start, don't we? Yep, yep. But again, yeah, look at, huh, when did they let him start wandering? Lady, it's... 10 o'clock in the middle of a rainstorm, they don't. Uh-huh. They don't let them wander around. No, yeah. You're an idiot. Yeah, something weird is, is definitely <laughs> taking place Indeed. here. But we get, yeah, Myers uh, takes over this vehicle and, you know, bashes the window and takes off and, and, and down the road. And Loomis knows where, where he's going. Like, his only headspace has only been, like, Smith's Grove and Haddonfield, Illinois. So it's now, like, kind of a race for him to stop him before any subsequent massacres happen right but um of course he's gonna be late (laughs) but yeah or there's no movie yeah so let's yeah let's jump to haddonfield it is now halloween day it's a nice crisp fall day in sunny los angeles california how about that (laughs) but uh i think expertly located because these streets like it they've always given me like the heebie-jeebies just because and again accompanied by that great like do 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 this could be any street corner in uh indiana washington uh, georgia like these streets are not los angeles they're not even haddonfield illinois it's any street in the continental united states they look like this and I think that's a real fear. I mean, we've been at summer camp and then in dreamland. This is a different type of fear. And it's one that actually makes me a little uneasy because it actually deals with the real horrors of the world, the real psychos out there that literally just kind of come into your door or come into your house and they and, and murder you. You know what I mean? Yes. And I think you said a really good uh, towards the end there, like if they didn't just like lock their doors, but... We didn't grow up in like a small town, but that's the small town mentality. They don't lock them for shit. No, because if some the neighbor wants to come over and grab an egg and a cup of sugar, I'm okay with that because yeah. I trust them. Mm-hmm. The perversion of the normal is essential piece of horror. Mm-hmm. So you take a sweet little child, and then the art that they do ends up being some demonic rendition of whatever is part of their family, mm-hmm. or the act of giving birth. And you realize what you're birthing is the Antichrist. So, you know, like the perversion of the normal is essential to horror and attacking Mm -hmm. suburbia. Oh, yeah. Every town, USA, the middle of clean streets and high elm trees and the smell of apple pie. Yeah. And and corrupting that or perverting that is it's a horror staple. It's the foundation upon which all horror is. I have to I'd have to go back and do some really thorough research to see like. If there was like a film that did this in like suburbia this well before Halloween. Because, mm-hmm. you know, like mm-hmm. Psycho's like an off-road motel in the middle of nowhere. And that's, you know, that's creepy too. We have all those urban legends about that. Well, The Exorcist is a little bit of that, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, that's just a, a girl in a house. That's a little bit of that. A little maybe. bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, yeah, to take it into like these suburban streets and in the homes of America is a different fear altogether. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, we're introduced to Jamie Lee Curtis as introduced in the titles. Uh, this is her first film role. How about and that? what a nice comparison, too, between, like, you know, Janet Lee's Psycho, you know, the invention. As Carpenter has stated, that was the beginning of the modern horror film. For sure. Uh, and we've talked about that before. But to have her mother and then have, you know, daughter kind of 
you know, taking that crown in, in a different way where Hoare was going to go for the next few years here. Uh, a really interesting start. And I think we have a lot to say about her character. I just want to say just from the way she's dressed in this kind of introduction, these like probably like thigh high, like wholesome socks. Yeah. This like cardigan sweater really covered up. Wholesome very and wholesome. conservative. And I don't yeah. mean in a political way, just very, very conservative, very conservative. Oh, yeah. And sensible yes functional but mm-hmm. here's the thing i also think that's interesting about that man because mm-hmm. i totally agree with mm-hmm. what you're saying mm-hmm. it'd be really easy to make that as frumpy or ugly mm-hmm. there's still a subtle river of attractiveness with her oh yeah and i'm not i mean young jamie lee curtis no one's going to be like oh <clears throat> yeah what a uncover matt just uncovered a nugget she's kind of pretty like no one, like yeah. obviously mm-hmm. but they do a good job of even though Here's that word again. Mm-hmm. She's a bit repressed. Oh, yeah. There's still the uncovering that we're encouraged or mm-hmm. intrigued by. Because mm-hmm. underneath the, the stockings yeah. and the the blouse that has the floral print <laughs> yeah. and the topes and the earth tones, uh-huh. there's a woman under there, right? Yeah, exactly. And that's important yeah, because that leads to the sexuality in this film that is clearly a part of this film. Very obvious, yes. So her dad's a realtor, Strode Realty, and she has to go drop a key off at the Myers place because some loon is going to buy this house that is just so (laughs) so dilapidated in this this pretty nice neighborhood. You know what I mean? Like just totally bringing down the value on all those other properties there. Such an (laughs) eyesore. But we... She goes and drops the key off under the mat with little Tommy Doyle, mm-hmm. who she's going to babysit uh, on, here on Halloween night because she has no plans. And we get uh, Myers sees them from the inside of the house. Yeah. Now, this is what's also fascinating about this and just totally bastardizing all the subsequent films in this series because it's all related and paternal and just such bullshit. This is just a glimpse of woman and young child. So I think Myers sees, oh, this is sister and myself. You know what I mean? Yes. And instead of it being like, oh, well, it's my sister and I'm going to like, sister Judith, not sister Lori, which is where the series goes. But it becomes an infatuation and a stalking to the nth degree. And it's motivated just purely by... Just the image and the visage, and I, I must have you. I must follow you, and I'm gonna do whatever I can to do that. And that's that's creepy, and that's the motivation for Myers's little six year old intellectual brain. That I think's, I think you get more horror out of that than being, oh yeah, it's just a sister, and that's why he's doing it. I think it's said best in Scream when it's a lot scarier when there isn't a motivation. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like he just picks her. He could have picked any girl that day. But it's her. And I find that frightening. I'm going to argue that Michael's killings in this film are actually done out of a backwards and crazy version of affection. Mm -hmm. And that it's the best he can do to share some intimacy with somebody. Mm -hmm. I think in this particular scene that you're talking about is we're again watching through the glass as he's... I'm probably assuming in the mask because he's in the mask the whole film again. Mm -hmm. So we're revisiting that. Yep. I almost feel like he's a little bit jealous yeah. of Lori and the boy she's going to babysit later. Sure. It's a little healthier. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Ooh, good. Right? Yeah. I think that relationship is a little healthier. Than Judith and young Michael. Right? Mm-hmm. And so I feel like, again, through repression and regret and the stalled out nature that Michael 
experiences at seven years old. I think he's wildly jealous mm. of both of them. Yeah. And again, you said it, and it's, I think, the key component in Michael versus Freddy versus Jason. Uh-huh. There's a lot of theory around why he does it, and yeah. it's just theory. Yeah. There's somebody out there that's like, well, I'm wrong, and that person's right, because I probably am. Yeah. But the fact that it is undefined mm-hmm. and why he does it is somehow based in sexuality and masks and Halloween. But it's such a gray area. You can go so many different mm-hmm. ways. And that leaves it so open for interpretation. Uh-huh. I think I love it. And I think that stacked on top of the suburban setting just makes it that much creepier. Because there is no rhyme or reason why a lot of these things happen in real life. A lot of times, psychos just pick someone and then that's it. It literally brings it to your backyard, Jesse. We don't know what the motivation of that guy is next door. Mm-hmm. He, But you're in the middle of suburbia right now. Yeah. And this guy next door has things in his past that you don't know about and don't understand. Sure. That, let, that brings it to your doorstep. Yep. With the possibility of, God, could that be me? Mm-hmm. Now, guess what we've done? Yep. We've suspended disbelief and we have buy-in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and over the boogeyman, which is something we all know about. Exactly. That term boogeyman. Like whatever that, that personification looks like. But let's talk about Myers for a couple a couple minutes here. Uh, I want to say three things about him that you just strike out from this first film compared to you know where this goes. Okay. Uh, the first is his breathing. This really heavy breathing, which you probably would be breathing heavy in this mask that's just like so hot in there. The breathing's going to serve a very important component later in the film. But that's curious why they, they totally nixed that for like every other entry in the series. Yeah, that's probably a mistake going forward. There's also lesser talent, I think, making those films as well. And then it becomes a monetary reason versus let's just kind of make this movie because someone's letting us make a movie type of mentality. I have a really cool idea, and this dude gave me $325,000 and basically said, yeah, it's money that was disposable, <clears throat> so go have fun. And then you get the true vision versus yes. this has got to make money, so the we studio can, wants to make it palatable. So we can make the next one. Right. Yep. It becomes a machine. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I I mean, I hate this word because it's so easy to use and it's so easy to levy this criticism on anything from sports to music to film. But it's sort of, ugh, I'm going to say it, mm-hmm. a bit of a sellout kind of argument. Oh, yeah. And I hate it, but it's it kind of fits here. Sometimes, yeah, it can be. I, I totally agree with you. But part of selling out is also allowing the perpetuation of whatever entity you're involved in. Yes, too. yes. Right? So Exactly. Uh, the breathing. Do you want to get into that? No, let's 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 say kill? let's save okay. that till the first kill. Okay. Second thing is the mask. So mm-hmm. as it's been documented, um, Tommy Lee Wallace was in charge. He's a production designer of the film. Was in charge of finding a mask. Got a clown mask and this William Shatner Star Trek mask, which looked nothing like him, but it was skin tone. So what they did was they sprayed it white, poofed the hair, opened up the eye holes, shaved off the eyebrows and the sideburns, and then you get what you get in the film. And I think. You know, Carpenter said in documentaries past that this featureless visage is he was very influenced by like films like Eyes Without a Face. That, really? I didn't yes, know that. Yeah, that you, you could paint any features and image on this face that you huh. want. And again, that's that's a horrifying component. Again, I don't know what happened to the mask, but then they, they the, every other sequel has a different mask and it's just ruined. Uh, I think at one point in the second one, I think it's like I think it's like blonde in one scene. Like, what the hell? Third component, I think this is the most important component of Michael Myers, which is the body movement. We talked about this in RoboCop with Peter Weller and the ability to move like a robot should. Uh, Mike, so played by Nick Castle, who was actually John Carpenter's like school buddy at USC. 
who was just hanging around and they said, you may as well be the guy in the mask. His father was a, like a choreographer for Fred Astaire. So he knew a lot about body language and movement. Hmm. But kind of watch him, especially in that scene with Tommy Doyle when he like stops that boy and then kind of turns. And it's just a natural fluid motion. Um, it, he's played by stuntmen in the subsequent sequels, and it's so robotic and stiff. Yeah, it doesn't have like a humanity to it. Well if said. That, if that makes sense. Very well said. I think, and and especially later when like when he pulls up to the car at, between the two babysitting houses mm-hmm. and kind of walks from there, and then is kind of looking behind that tree at Annie, mm-hmm. go into the house. It, it it has a a humanity to it, which again I think that's horrifying. It's not so zombified and Frankenstein like. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's I think they really nailed this this character down here, but let's just kind of set the stage a little bit more with you. Can I say go this ahead. is so weird to me? Yeah, um, you mentioned Nick Nick Castle, yes. and for I bet eighty percent of the listeners out there, it's the first time they've ever heard that name mm-hmm. in regards to. I mean, they might know Nick Castle, who's a friend, but in regards to this film, yeah, I can't imagine it wasn't like Nick Castle. Mm-hmm. was demanding a king's ransom for a continuance in this series. Oh, yeah. And I certainly know that Nick Castle wasn't so busy he couldn't carve out mm-hmm. X amount of time to play this part. So, and not to bang on the studio system, because I think the studio system and the conversation of John Carpenter mm-hmm. is everything that's right and wrong with movies. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Here's a big budget and a terrible release date. Here's no money and we'll leave you the hell alone and look what can happen. I've just <laughs> yeah. talked about the thing in Halloween yeah. in one sentence. Yeah. I just don't know how people didn't look at that performance in this film that had money and say, here's all the things that aren't broken. Let's not fix them. Number one, mm-hmm. the shape as it's named in the credits, mm-hmm. not even called Michael, just the shape. The shape, yeah. Is the shape because it moves Mm -hmm. in a way that's fluid as a total embodiment of whatever the shape means when we read that title? Yeah. Why did they, quote unquote, fix that going forward? Yeah. And it's a rhetorical question. I'm not looking for your answer. Like, it's just, it's, that wasn't broken. I actually have an answer for you. And and I think it just comes down to Carpenter and Deborah Hill and all these people Mm -hmm. involved in this film did not want to do a sequel. At all. Well, that's Carpenter and the divorce, right? Yeah, Isn't yeah. Isn't that part of like him and Deborah Hill's divorce? Well, yeah, the, uh, yeah the, 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 they split up. But like they kind of always saw this film as a one-off. And naturally, yeah. in, in the studio world, when a film makes $70 million against a three twenty-five budget, it was the most profitable independent film of all time when Ever, it came right. out. Yeah. yeah. Naturally, they want more. Sure. And so Carpenter struggled to make that second film. He didn't direct it, but he wrote the screenplay, and it was just a, sl- a slog from him. You're going to get a nice paycheck, but... You know, like in his headspace, and this is why I respect the man so much, you finally have an ability to play in Hollywood, which is, that's so hard to just get in. And now you can get all those ideas that have been festering in your brain, whether that be The Fog or Escape from New York, and now you actually can play, and they want you doing the same film all over again, when you're essentially rehashing the same formula at that point. So you just put an idea into my head that I want sure. to pose to you. Yeah. In this film, and you brought it up as we were just watching it. Mm-hmm. In this film, one of the movies that the kids are watching the night of Halloween mm. is the thing. Now it's Howard Hawks from 1942, yeah. Thing from Another yeah. World. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I think even at this point in Carpenter's career, 
he certainly has an interest in that movie, if not a desire to redo it. Definitely. Otherwise, you could. It could be Dracula. It could be the Wolf. Anything. It's that movie, mm-hmm. which even in 1940 horror is a little bit still even obscure. Yeah. With a mega director, but a very odd little film. Oh yeah. That movie, mm-hmm. the thing. Mm-hmm. Everything that it is and isn't to me is John Carpenter's entire total of filmography in two hours. That's everything that was right with him and wrong with everything else in a two-hour viewing. Yeah. I wonder if the promise or even the subconscious desire to make that film Mm -hmm. allowed, and here's that horrible word, and I don't mean this in any disrespect to John Carpenter. Yeah. Is the sellout nature of number two mm-hmm. to allow him to play in the studio system's playground so that maybe down the road I get to do my passion project, the thing? I think there might be more truth to that than you think because Halloween 2 is actually purchased by Universal and Universal made the thing. So yep. it gets you in there to do that. Like It's almost like a quid per quo. It's like, let me do this so I can do this film in studios. They, they do that shit all the time. Right. You have to do for a... Like, Christopher Nolan wanted to do Inception after Insomnia. And they said, well, you haven't really kind of like t- take a crack at some other things. So he had done Batman, Begins, The Prestige, and then and then The Dark Knight. And they said, okay, now there's some clout to your name. Let's give you this budget to do this original high concept summer release film. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's it's a lot of that at, at play here. I can also respect the grind that he had to go through mm-hmm. to get to even Halloween. Because it's funny, because as important as that neighborhood in Haddonfield is for Halloween to him, is our own version of not even being able to get the meeting for the story in the same neighborhood. Do you want to tell that story right now? Let's do it. Let's do it. Because we have our own sort of Halloween story in a weird way also. Yes, I I think it's, I can't can't remember which, which year it is, but we're in Los Angeles. We're taking meetings with some people and like... I'm drinking too much caffeine and you're sweating through shirts and we, we must look like such a pair at that point. So we're on a way. I think the meeting that day was with Bold Films. Bold Films. Right yeah. after they did Drive. Um, Drive, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we're meeting with him and Jesse's tweaking on like six shots of espresso and Matt's like sweated through his like baby blue like polo shirt. Oh my God. It's yeah, that's that image alone. Like that just sells the meeting right there. But we had a few more lined up uh, with Atlas per, uh, uh, Entertainment. They had just done Man of Steel. I think they were flirting with Uncharted, that Devo Hell film at that point. Well, and, you know, to my good friend Jake Curley, God yeah. bless you if you're out there, my friend. Yeah. Someday we are going to have a, 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 a lunch, a meeting. Yeah. We're going to do it. And we're going to tell this story to you. And I won't be sweaty that day. You won't be sweaty. So we're on the way to meet him, and then he's, like, getting pulled into a meeting. And so that kind of fell through. But I tell you, I'm like, man, we may as well make the most of this. Like, literally down the road are the houses of the Doyle and the Wallace residence here on like West Sunset. It's sort of like a mile from the Chinese theater. Yeah. And it's it, it, there. One of them looks identical to how it does in the film. The other ones had some work, but it's, it's so surreal for myself, at least to kind of be on that street and just be like, man, this is, this is where they got to play here. Like and make, and make this thing. And that street's not very big, right? It's like a very narrow street. It looks big. Again, the widescreen makes that street look bigger than it really is. I just, Again, and I, I don't want to level an iota of criticism to John Carpenter. Mm-hmm. I have so much respect for that man. But I do know that where you and I were and how like our story and film has evolved into literally what we're living right now in this very second. Yeah. Started with screenwriting and meetings and ideas. 
and to get and honestly jesse from the pitch fest that we were at to where we batted a thousand i'm not bragging to anyone out there please do not take that because everyone in the world requested our projects and literally none of them read it which is the curse of screenwriting mm -hmm. to which i would argue is pretty successful to actually scheduling some meetings and then having them canceled because somebody had another thing come up yeah or you didn't have the right project at the right time or you were off-putting to somebody jonathan oaks god bless you too my friend john mm -hmm. oaks yep. uh, at bold films because you were too sweaty because your car thing was too far to drive and it said it was a mile walk and it was actually six mile walk in the heat <laughs> of the fucking day yeah. so you were like i totally get how john carpenter can say all right i'll do halloween too because maybe down the road you'll give me the chance to do what I really want to do, which is the thing. Mm -hmm. And for everything that's right with him yeah. and the I'm going to give a little bit so I can get a little bit in the end goes back to Josh Olson mm -hmm. and Mr. History of Violence yeah. at the screenwriting conference yeah. and bitching yeah. about having to write. Yeah, the sequel to The Wizard of Oz. So we're not we're going to untoast to that. <laughs> untoast. God bless you, John Carpenter. Yeah. Josh Olson, kiss it. Yeah. So who cares? I always forget my chemistry book and my math book and my English book and my, let's see, my French book. And, well, who needs books anyway? I don't need books. I, I always forget all of my books. I mean, <laughs> it doesn't really matter if you have your books or not. Hey, isn't that Devon Graham? I don't think so. I think he's cute. Hey, jerk! Speed kills! So let's pick it up a little bit here. We have uh, the introduction of the rest of our little friend group, which, you know, they're kind of just, they're, they're here for the fodder, but then we have um, uh, Nancy Loomis as Annie and PJ Souls from Carrie as, as Linda. And I, I mentioned this to you and, you know, they're walking down the street and, you know, Myers looks at them and again, that's this stalkery way. He's like just all up in their business I asked you, I was like, Matt, do you kind of think that Lori's friends are, these are like, she's like their pity friend and they either A, feel bad about her or B, use her for their own devices, whether that be help on homework because Lori's probably very studious and B, later in the film, watch my babysitting gig because I need to go get laid. Um, I think it's their like fallback and Lori's too nice to realize that this is what they're doing to, to her. Yeah, I do think that. Yeah. <laughs> the PJ Souls one is really funny to me. I wonder if her agent was, do you need a bitchy high school student? Yeah. Because I have that in my stable of, anyway. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah because she's the same girl in both of those two films. Mm -hmm. I mean, she's more naked in this one, but yeah. she's the same one. Yeah, exactly. So tight cast. Yeah, yep. mm -hmm. Ancillary side bitchy. <laughs> no, you're totally right. So funny. Yeah. Um, yeah, you got to feel bad for Lori in this, but it's also, I think, why she's going to be our final girl in this film. Yeah. Uh, there's way more soul and depth and intelligence to her than there is either of her two dim-witted or whorish friends. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and we mentioned this, or I mentioned this to you when we were watching the film. Mm -hmm. For the first death, which is Annie, mm -hmm. I actually do really find myself pulling for Michael in that. Yeah. Because she's, at this point, so sarcastic and just insufferable. Yeah. And I think Lori chooses to be with her because mm -hmm. maybe there's just not other any options on the table yeah 
she is miles ahead of her peers yeah. insofar as a maturity level. And I also do think there's an element of maturity in this film oh, yeah. regarding sex and parenting and upbringing and children and stalled out growth and all of that stuff. And Laurie is mature beyond her years in mm-hmm. this film. Whereas they're making little stupid, snide, sarcastic comment, you said, for homework. Yeah. They're also the butt of every single one of her jokes. Yeah, exactly. And I keep waiting for Lori to be like, you know, girls, I've just about had it, but I don't think Lori has anywhere else to go either. No, yeah. Because she's so busy with, like, real life that she doesn't <laughs> have time to play these petty high school stupid yeah. 16-year-old girl vindictive bullshit games. Mm-hmm. So she's also kind of restrained in that, too. And my evidence for this is going to be, and we'll get to it, I hope, yeah. or maybe I'm doing it right now. Yeah, do it. When Tommy's scared mm-hmm. about the boogeyman, mm-hmm. and she talks him off the cliff. Yeah. I got you. I'm mm-hmm. here for you. Mm-hmm. I won't let anything happen to you. And in fact, she keeps her word, doesn't yeah. she? Oh, yeah. Okay. <clears throat> so I guess that's a really long answer to your, yes, no, that's, that's what she is. I think that's a fantastic answer. And then to kind of just couple that with our final girls, you know, we've seen Alice in Friday the 13th with some whatever weird relationship with steve christie and then uh, nancy had johnny depp glenn the boyfriend so she's like Lori's only barely thinking about boys yeah bennett tramer r.i.p goes out drinking with mike godfrey and in halloween 2 is hit by a car and just incinerated like (laughs) so yeah Lori, that's not even going to work out for you either but i think it's she's so far behind even those two Mm -hmm. to what's about to happen and but she plays such a different type of maternal uh instinct here with the the babysitting element which i think is done very well yeah i agree (coughs) well let's get to our (coughs) excuse me let's get to our first death here which is which is annie here um i think just they're all staged very well and you know michael's kind of disposed of lester the dog and it just again we're just watching him watch which as an audience man just that's just kind of that should make you feel creepy well, you're a double voyeur. You're yeah. not even an active voyeur. Yeah. You're watching the watcher. Like, that is the crux of Rear Watching window. the watcher. Yeah. Watching the watcher watch. Yes. If you're judging that person, then look in the mirror, man, which makes you, like, a watcher to the fourth degree because mm-hmm. you're watching the watcher watch the watcher. Yeah. You're the biggest loser there. Yes. And here's the thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's a trick because if you stop watching, then you lose the film. But there's also a recognition of how smart mm-hmm. that is because you said it so well. So much of this movie is from Michael's point of view, from the beginning through the rest of the film. You're just engaged in his depravity. And for me, although I really love the second half of this film, Mm -hmm. I actually like the first half more when he's just sort of methodically stalking after all of them. Yeah. Uh, And if that's something that you're going to judge him on and say, look at the sins of this guy, he's so crazy, mm-hmm. then it's a stark mirror test that you're going to fail pretty yeah, drastically. Big time, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what about us? Oh, Jesse? yeah, exactly. What about us? So this first death is um, in um, in the car, this yeah. <laughs> Monte Carlo, I think you said? Yeah, I think we had that car growing up. <laughs> it's maroon Monte Carlo. Ours was, ours was baby blue, but yeah. Excellent. And... Um, it's all fogged out, and it's it's really like glazed haze, and Myers shows up in the back, and then it becomes this choking. I want you to take this for a while because you had some great things to say about this, but yeah, this is a very interesting sequence of events. Okay, so I'm going to walk back like maybe two scenes, and we see Michael watching the girl that he's about to do in as she spills butter on herself and essentially strips down, which then incites mm-hmm. the young Michael reaction that we've sort of discussed earlier yeah 
as he murders her in that in that car yeah. and chokes her out, his breathing is labored, and I would go so far as to say erotic to orgasmic. Yeah. Um, I hope this isn't off-putting to anybody that's listening, but it's almost like as she gets closer to death, he gets closer to climax. Yeah. And as she perspires, he comes. Mm-hmm. And then we move on to a post-coital, sto- post-coital state mm-hmm. in him. That breathing element yeah. is John Carpenter, who I know in my heart mm-hmm. knew exactly what he was doing when he said, I need you to breathe like this through the mask in that. Is him well, that, making, I, I bet you, too, that wasn't even done like on set. That's an ADR recording effect. For sure. So even more hammered in. For sure. Mm-hmm. Um, he's clearly... yeah releasing the repression mm-hmm. of regret and anger that we saw in seven-year-old Michael <clears throat> that he's never gotten over. And I love that Loomis is like, dark eyes, black eyes. I can't... He was so evil. The devil's eyes, yeah. Is it as simple as yeah. it's just sexual repression? Because the answer for me yeah, is yes, definitely. and this scene proves it. Yeah. And I also think he doesn't murder her in a turtleneck with wool slacks on. <laughs> no, yeah. It's basically what she would wear. And again, not to offend anybody... It's what a woman might put on after the act is finished when she wears the shirt that the guy took off on the floor to go out to the kitchen and get whatever she's going to get. Yep. Like it's 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 the iconic image of she just got laid. Mm-hmm. No, it is. And she's in the it da- totally is. She's yeah. in the shirt. Yeah. In her panties, barely buttoned. It just it, the whole thing is sex. Yeah. It's like Alien all over again. <laughs> right. But And then we get the scene. I think I told you this is the, the scene that's always stuck out to me. When they're watching some... They're not even watching The Thing anymore. That's ended. They're watching some like Fantastic Voyage or a, a Fantastic Planet ripoff. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, they're watching... Uh, Tommy tries to scare little Lindsay behind the, the blinds here. And he sees Myers carrying Annie's lifeless mm. body... Like so far away through the window into the house with the sound effects of that science fiction film, yikes! Like that's that's hor- that's true horror to me, and you don't even really see anything. It's from such a distance; it shouldn't be affecting you the way it is, but it definitely does. Can I lay one more film theory on you on the miasma of fifty I've given you no, today yeah, go too? Go ahead. So I'm going to talk about the birds for one second. Okay. When Annie Hayworth dies in the birds, okay, and Mitch Brenner picks her up after she's basically been pecked her eyes out and yes. looks like she's been raped on the steps. Mm-hmm. He carries a cro- he carries her across the threshold of the house. Yeah. Which is the closure and the relationship that he never gave her mostly because of mom. Oh, that's good. If I say to you man carrying woman across threshold of the house, what do you associate that marriage. with? Marriage. Right. Mm-hmm. Which the first time that happens and marriage then goes to let's start a family. Mm-hmm. Michael doing that with Annie mm-hmm. is such a perversion oh, yeah. of the the norm. The norm, yeah. which is again the horror common trope. Yeah. To John credit to John Carpenter's credit. Mm-hmm. And you know what that costs? Yeah. Nothing. Three hundred and twenty five thousand. Well, or the muscles <laughs> on the shape. Yeah, exactly. Nick Castle's muscles to carry her across. Yeah. That him in a mask. Yep. Knowing what he's just done to her to carry her across the threshold of suburban USA is such a perversion oh, yeah. of the family and normalcy. Yeah. It's fucking brilliant. Yeah. No, def- definitely. And, uh, you know, we got, meanwhile, we have Loomis running around like a psycho man. So th- there should really be. <laughs> scaring kids at the house. Scaring kids, running around, yelling at everyone like a yeah. loon. Yeah. But, like, 
they really should have said all points bulletin looking for two psychotics in Haddonfield right now. Right. <laughs> including but, him. Including him. Yeah, and Michael. But he's interesting just because, again, he's fitting that authority figure where, like, no one's believing him yet either until it's literally too late. And then it's just a bloodbath in, in, the, in the sequel. And he's, like, in full loon mode in that second one. Yes. But... It, it's very interesting because, you know, he's just kind of sulking around the bushes, kind of waiting, not being a very passive participant in the film until uh, the the inevitable climax. I find Loomis's character interesting first, but then yeah, um, the way Pleasance plays it is, is very interesting. Like, I, I've always liked Donald Play. He played Blofeld in one of the Bond films. So I, I like a moment he does later in the film. But let's kind of pick it up again here with now Linda and Bob, great greatest seventies glasses that ever existed. <laughs> again, they're going into the into the house now. This abandoned house, Myers is in there with the body of Annie, and we find later Judith's tombstone. Like, there's so much in there. Like, I just said a mouthful. Like, I well, three hours to dissect. Yeah, and then we get to a moment too, and I, I've seen this film so many times, Matt, at home on the big screen in classes and i've told you before that i took this cult film class and we watched halloween i think on like halloween night or like the 30th uh, of that class and the teacher um suggested participation like it's a part of the cult film and i totally get that you can do that with like rocky horror picture show and like like your teacher so you're gonna throw rice and toast at the like bullshit yeah, yeah shame on her yeah yeah to kind of create like the the cult and oh and, jesse and there's a part of me that's about that but like not, not on this film yeah not on this film it, this it's different so there was a lot of laughter at the awkward placement of myers watching and the circumstantial humor of like just how he is like uh, the scene now is him they're having sex and he walks by and everyone's like ha 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 and I'm like, I don't know what's funny about that, especially now when he, when we've established this like kind of um, stalled out sexual uh, depravity of Michael Myers, where he doesn't quite understand what this is, and it's he, it's he goes into attack mode at this at this point, this rage mode that takes him back to 1963. So for all of you that don't know the story, which is all of you. Mm-hmm. The night that Jesse watched this film in class, or maybe the week that Jesse watched this film in that class, mm-hmm. I, gosh, I think we might have been writing Memorial Day at that time. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So you came over for our weekly writing session, and I remember you telling me how upset you were about the way your classmates reacted in that film. Here's two things I want to say about that. Mm-hmm. You were right. Yeah. And secondly, for this to be categorized in schlocky cult status and laugh it off, speaks to how little knowledge Mm -hmm. your teacher had about not only what cult films were, but what this film is. I've always sort of raised an eyebrow, and I've just come to the peace with this right now in this moment Mm -hmm. with you, Mm -hmm. when you've told me that this film was included in a cult film class. I don't think that teacher really understood, and this is shameful that she was actually taking tuition from students based on (laughs) cult film, (laughs) that this was what she would consider in cult film. This is not cult film. This is genre-defining film, and those are miles from each other. Definitely. So shame on her for doing that. Yeah. And the fact that your classmates laughed as the shape or Michael walks by uh, Linda Mm -hmm. and Bob in the sack getting down speaks to how effective that scene is because she gave them Mm -hmm. an easy out, which is laugh this off. Mm -hmm. 
But that scene is wildly uncomfortable. Yeah. Because you know after he finishes watching them get down, young Michael's going to show up with all of the things that we've already outlined. Yep. And those they're both going to fucking pay. Yeah. Shame on her for doing that in this film. Yeah. And you were right. Yeah, but I think it says a lot too. I know we we see a lot of horror films and people laugh during the horror. And I just always we know the release of comedy and tension and whatnot. I just don't know what's funny in this instance too about nothing, you know nothing's pe- pe- funny about yeah, that. Be- people being choked out and being hacked to death that to find a humorous response in that and aging well is not an out. That's bullshit. But is the encore to this humorous event the shower scene in Psycho? Yeah. What the hell? Just exactly. Be, yeah, exactly. So yeah, let's move on from Jesse's tirade. But yeah, no, that's it's, it's fair, Jesse. That like, was an that's, that's wrong. It was an odd night for myself, especially as much as I love the film. Yeah. So he, for everybody out there, Jesse was really bothered that yeah, night. Yeah. Yeah. You're just justifiably so. Yeah, I think it was, it was like a, it was like a litany, <laughs> just yeah. of like a, just a list of shit. Shame. So we get Bob's death now out of the out of the pantry again, just like the fear fierce strength of Michael having to pierce through Bob to stick him. Through the pantry door is just wow, but does his strength take on a bit of a supernatural feeling for you a little bit? In I this? think in this film, but it's not where it's like ridiculous right. as it gets with like the Celtic ruins later in the series. Yeah, God, God. Because to me too, he's almost he's almost supernaturally strong, but yeah. not in a weird like oh come on he just threw a car over the Empire State Building. Yeah, not in a fantastical way. It's not still, Superman. It's still yeah, it's still very grounded. And then in this odd moment where he kind of just like kind of looking at his wreckage. And the, to me, this is the mm-hmm. intellectual Michael at, at six. He's done this act. He's released his repression. And I don't think he understands kind of like what he just did. You know what I mean? I think it, it looks weird to him. Satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Um, again, back to that same word you used earlier, which I'm loving right now. Mm-hmm. The post-coital satisfaction of, <clears throat> man, what just happened? And I'm in that moment sort of putting all the pieces back together. And he's, you know, when you get like a, a dog yeah, and they give you the head tilt as they're sort of intrigued in what you're doing. Yeah. There's an element of understanding or lack of ability to understand in Michael. Mm-hmm. And think about the consequence, though. I just killed this guy by staking him or knifing him to the door. Yeah. And I can't quite um, totally grasp what's happened, but I'm certainly interested it reduces him to a state that there's no rational way to talk him out of this. It's that Frankenstein moment yes. of throwing Maria in. It's like, yes. I just did this and I kind of don't know what I did. And now I need to move on. That's what I'm saying when I told you earlier, right? In this, you just said it so well. Mm-hmm. Frankenstein throws Maria in that lake out of love. Because yeah. pretty things belong in the water. Mm-hmm. I don't. Michael has no healthy release. Yeah. First sexual mm-hmm. charged reaction. Yeah. Not masturbation. Mm-mm. Not the actual act of sex as verb. Mm-hmm. Nothing. Yeah. So it's almost in a weird way, but not to Michael, weird to us. And that's where you get the horror, the perversion of the normal. Yeah. It's almost a compliment to Bob. Yeah. He puts him up on the knife. Yeah. It's almost a, a sacred altar that he's kind of admiring, Jesse. Yeah. Think about that. Mm-hmm. That's so... That's so... Fucked up. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and beautiful in horror. And this is why I love horror so much. And it's been fun the last two months to kind of really kind of stay in this genre and really get like a good servings from different types of films because you, you can't do this 
in like Bad Boys by Michael Bay. You know what I mean? It's so basic. <laughs> and and Halloween, if you want it, can be like that. It, on the surface, it's a guy stalking some babysitters. We get a body count. We get the tit shots. Yeah. All of that. Yeah. But like below the surface where I think a lot of great films lie, the films we tend to like, I think there's more to be seen there that um, is very fascinating. When Michael stakes Bob to that door, my, Bob has just completed the act that Michael's never been able to do. And I, I just, I'm going to ask you a rhetorical question, but it's maybe it's not entirely rhetorical. When he stakes him, is there any reason why Bob has to be staked at a slightly elevated level versus Michael? Like in the functionality of death? Yeah. No. But the fact that he is in a superior position to Michael mm -hmm. idolizes or alterizes him. That's good. And the fact that Bob is elevated above Michael and he gives the head tilt as he's looking at him in admiration and wonder mm -hmm. goes back to further... How in control of sexual repression mm -hmm. John Carpenter was in this film. Yeah. Um, and that's not cultish yeah. or, or silly. Mm -hmm. It's genius, frankly. Yeah. It, it really is. It, no, I mean that. I mean that with all yeah. like 30 plus years of bitchy film knowledge. Like it's, <laughs> it's genius. To it comes do across that. very well. So then we just continue on this train with Lyndon now and then this strangulation by telephone cord. And I think I mentioned to you, like, we've seen Michael behind, like, visage of hedges and cars across the street through, uh, like, curtains. This is, like, the first real good glimpse we get of him, like, up close. And he picks up the phone. And, again, it's just, like, it's so, like, hammered in at this point. Yeah. Just, like, this confusion that this featureless face, like, tends to, tends to give off. Yeah. Yeah, let's finish that wool cut here. Bye-bye. I've got a new new cast coming up, so. There it goes. No, it's real good. And then, you know, again, Linda's, Linda's, I feel like, yeah, we're just, we're just hammering on the head at this point. Very euphoric, almost orgasmic, even though it's at a moment of death. Yeah, it's like, ha, ha, ha. Yeah, yeah, it's really bizarre. And so now we're left with Michael and his, what, what he's going to do in the house next. And then Lori, this virginal, pure, conservative figurine this paternal figure that's now put the kids to bed so she can kind of go see what's going on responsible mom mm -hmm. as an 18 year old kid finally showing some good parenting skills yeah in not in the genre yeah no ronnie blakely just pounding down the vodka <laughs> no but yeah actually, i know what's what's the guy's name in friday the 13th the council the head counselor guy mr Crim. oh steve christie man and his jorts roll <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> rolling up on the hottest counselor you can find. Yeah, yeah what? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I right? think there's some real craft actually taking place here. Yeah. So then we get it, and this is the, this is my favorite scene in in the entire film. We oh. kind of, we kind of get into the house here, and her up the stairs, and yeah, it does go on a little long. As the, there's always that scene in a slasher film where it's just like, man, we're watching this character just like walk through everything at this point. They're like padding the running time. But mm -hmm. uh, we finally get up to that upstairs bedroom. We got Annie splayed out on the bed with the Judith Myers headstone that's been stolen there. So read into that however you want to read into it. On the bed. Yeah, on the bed. Come yeah. on. Yeah. And then we just got all the bodies falling out of the, the shelves and flying around. And then I think one of the, the best cinematography shots in all of film, we get mm -hmm. Lori back up against the hall and then yet uh, the cinematographer, Dean Cundy, they, they had put a dimmer 
like in in that that room and then slowly turned it up so that he was <sighs> so it just reveals the features of his face that's good shit like yes, that's that's is. really good like that's horror without being disgusting without being in your face without overusing your monster um it's just something it. I, yeah it it's something that's not existent a lot today it's that independent filmmaking mentality we need to find a way to get scares because we don't have the money to do so how are we going to do it? I'm just going to put it like a dimmer on this light switch and it'll just slowly reveal his face. Yeah, that's freaking creepy, man. For the hundred kajillionth time, mm-hmm. less is more. And this is proving it because then when the reveal is given to us, it has so much more impact in that scene. And the dimmer that you're, that dimmer bit you're talking about is, you know, a classic moment in film. One of many in this film. Yeah. I, I don't want to. You said it well. I agree completely. Yeah. To, to dimmers and <laughs> to a mask that almost glows, even though it's not a glowing mask, because it's handled in the hands of a master. Yeah. As someone that's really trying to do something with, yeah, with so little. Yeah. <laughs> Where there's less, there's more. Uh, the other thing that's interesting about Lori at this point is we've gone from very covered up, conservative, uh, knee high socks and whatnot. And then even when she's riding in the car with Annie, she has that like pullover on top of her collared shirt. Well, she's taking that off now. So she's in this. And now she's been penetrated by Michael to reveal more skin. Oh, so like good. it's just like it's just becoming more evident like about this encounter that she's having with this man at this point. Again, like Final Girl was then the Final Girl in Black Christmas. That's a whole nother can of worms and whatnot with Olivia. Fun to talk about Olivia Hussey's character, but like this is truly setting up how these characters are going to play out through this subgenre in the early '80s. Here, like she's the stereotypical very first one, mm-hmm. uh, which is which is very interesting. But again, we get that unreliable authority figure. She's screaming in the neighborhood. They're shutting off the lights and rolling up the blinds. No one can be turned to. Um, So she's trying to get home. And this is what I truly love about Halloween um, more than the the other uh, films uh, series. And it gets laughed about like, man, just like just run away from Michael. He, He walks so slow. That's part of it. Michael knows he has her exactly where he wants her. He's gonna get her. If he wants to. So that slow kind of him on the house across the street as she's trying to get inside is just, yeah, you're just prolonging the inevitable because I'm going to find a way in. I'm going to find a way and I'm going to get what I want. And yeah, it's just, yeah, good luck. As Tommy comes downstairs to let Lori in the house Mm -hmm. because she's locked out Mm -hmm. and he's rubbing the sleep out of his eyes and so... You know, making molasses in the middle of December look fast compared to the rapidity with which he's moving. Why do oh, I yeah. keep saying that word? The, yeah. the, the pace or the tempo with which he's moving. Yeah. I'm, I can strangely almost relate to that. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> one of the more slow and arduous processes that takes place in my life, <laughs> this yeah. is so silly, yeah. is watching my daughter get out of the car. Mm. She is the slowest person in the world. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, yeah. did the sun set and rise? Get out of the damn car. Yeah. So I can actually relate to how slow, because he's even tired. Mm-hmm. But if he doesn't get there in time, mm-hmm. then she's she's toast. Mm-hmm. But Michael does pace her out because mm-hmm. he knows that the actual side or the back door is open. Mm-hmm. And it goes back to that vengeance piece that he has. I love that it's the innocent that saves Laurie, mm-hmm. the young boy. Yeah. And I love that Michael allows it to happen because you watch it. He can get there. All he has to do is just like 
double time it a little bit and yeah. he's got her. Yeah. But there's a larger goal to what he wants to achieve and that's take them all down. Yep. In a very perverted way, which is in their house after you've been saved. Like it's all so calculated. Yep. Um, but I still really love to watch it on a film because even today I was like, come on, come on, come on. Hurry, hurry. Get the door, Tommy. Get the door, Don't Tommy. you get feel like that? Yeah. Yes. yeah. You're like, hurry up. Like, you're like he's going to get her. And, and I find myself trying to rationalize with myself. Oh, well, maybe it's just the camera in proximity to where Lori is. And maybe this isn't Lori's POV, POV as Michael's walking across the street. Maybe like I find myself sort of bargaining in the time and the distance sure. that Michael is closing because I... This is such a such a a monumental moment in character buy-in for me because mm-hmm. I really want I really do want Laurie to live. Yeah, I need Laurie to live because mm-hmm. I like Laurie. Mm-hmm. Good job, John. Yeah, good job. Good job, John. So she sticks him in the neck with the the sewing uh, needle. We'll go upstairs. Kids are safe, but we're gonna have one a couple final showdowns here in the closet, which. <laughs> Way to think on your feet to make like uh, this like coat hanger shiv, shiv. Yeah. yeah, in there. Like I, I, I joke to you that I, I'd be screwed in my closet because all we have is plastic hangers and I wouldn't be able to break that thing. Wood or wire. Yeah, exactly. So I'd have been killed in this closet here. But I, again, we um, we get the final the like defeat of the boogeyman. We think, uh, but then we get the final rise and final confrontation as Loomis comes in to save the day. Maybe not quite. Like. Loomis's role here is also his like confrontation with what's plagued him and feared him this entire film. And I think there's a great moment here where we get the six shots. I shot him six times. It's a quote from film two. Mm-hmm. <laughs> where he thinks he's defeated this kind of monkey hanging on his shoulders for the last 15 years. And Laurie asks, is that the boogeyman and, and whatnot? And as a matter of fact, I think it was. And then what's revealed to us there on the on the, the the grassy thing? Nothing. It's gone. Right. I can't even defeat this thing. I'm a failure at my job. I've set this thing upon this town. Mm-hmm. They don't know what's coming for them. And Lori starts weeping, and it's because it's not over. The, the, the it's as long as that's out there, I'll never be safe. Kind of mentality, which is why I think the new film in 2018 works very well. Uh, do you know what year Donald Pleasance passed? 95, 96? One of the things that I thought about in this film was what would be a cool movie mm-hmm. would be the Donald Pleasance and Michael Myers sessions yeah. at Institution. And maybe, because I think we both agree Loomis is pretty creepy. Yeah. If you set that up in a way that Whatever agency or state department Loomis is working for is about to go under. Mm-hmm. And in a, necessi- in a necessary way to save his job, he takes what's slightly screwed up Michael and turns that screwed up Michael into really, really fucked up Michael. He makes it worse. Makes yeah. it worse yeah. is such an interesting idea for a film for me. That's something they flirted with in that Rob oh, Zombie, really? in the, uh, that Rob yeah, Zombie yeah, yeah, film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they totally messed it up. Well, yeah. that Rob, I think the Rob Zombie stuff is different than this stuff. Oh, yeah, it definitely is. Mostly all of them are different than this one. Yeah. But I, I'm kind of curious because maybe then we get a look into Ooh, that's good strange loomis because mm-hmm. he's a weirdo too very weird yeah and fails um he, I mean, he saves Lori essentially yeah um but yeah that there's a lot going on in that scene and maybe the re- like if the reluctance to pull the trigger on michael yeah 
is something that we could play with a little bit too. Mm-hmm. But regardless, whether it's it's immediate or reluctantly, he does shoot Michael, and you know what it does? It knocks him out the window, and then he just continues on like it's nothing. And then even like the pulling the mask off Michael, any re- that up. regular psycho would just like continue on with the prey. But Michael has to be behind the visage of this mask. So he takes the time to put it back on. Well, hey, when you pull the mask off Michael, Mm -hmm. it's similar to the state that we find him in at the beginning, which is disarmed Michael. Remember when the mom and dad pulled the mask off young Michael, he just stands there in a comatic state. And if he doesn't have the mask, he doesn't have his weaponization technique. And so unmasked... He doesn't have something to hide behind and he's exposed. Mm -hmm. But I got to ask you, when they pull off the mask, and I noticed this for the first time today. Yeah. She stabs him in the eye with the... the, um, Yeah, his eyes fucked up. Yeah, his eyes fucked up in that. I didn't even realize that. But other than his eye being fucked up because it just got stabbed, he just looks like a guy. Mm -hmm. There's no scars. There's no... He's he's not um, the dude from uh, Goonies, uh, whatever. <laughs> sloth. You know what I mean? He's he's just a regular looking guy. Yeah, he's not sloth. He's not cropsy. He's not Jason Voorhees. He's not even he's Freddy. Ju- right? He's just like a guy. And doesn't that make it scarier? Way more. We've set up suburban America. We've set up just regular dude next door. Yeah. That just has a mask on. Like, the guy at the annual picnic at the park in the community where everybody potlucks yeah. that dude you're playing catch with. That's that guy. Exactly. Every man mm-hmm. in every town at any time. Yeah, that's great. It's 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 effective, is what it is. Yeah. So let's unload this final this final scene. So we get Loomis kind of looking down. Myers is gone. Lori's crying, and Carpenter asked uh, or Loomis or Donald Pleasant said, and this is a veteran actor talking to a young director, saying, "Hey, I could play this two ways. I can play this. Oh my God, he's free. He's loose. I need to get down there." Or I could play. I knew this was going to happen, and we get that version, and it's a little more calculated. And as he, as his eyes kind of pan around the room, he's just like, "I don't know how I'm going to stop this thing. Yeah. It, this is going to keep happening." Which is the sequels, <laughs> but mm-hmm. I think it's it's a reserved type of glance, which is weird, like an acting glance or dissecting a glance. But I think it it means a lot to. You know what we're gonna see, which is this montage of places we've seen Michael in the film: staircases, um, foyers, in front of houses, with the breathing getting increasingly louder, yeah. louder, louder, until we get our final shot of the Myers house, and then we cut to black. Man, evil- literally climax. Yeah. Man, evil's everywhere. Right. This is your town. This is that small town. This is your big city. This crazy person's out there, and there's no getting rid of the shape at this point. Um, he'll find a way to keep moving. And there's a part of me deep down in like my like film soul that I kind of wish this was it. You know what I mean? I do. Because it's, it's so effective of just that visage of boogeyman still on the loose. To not have to further go into, well, what's he going to do next? And I get Hollywood. I, I know how Hollywood operates. I don't even necessarily begrudge them that. Yeah. Because for all of the things that the financial part of that that we're sort of being hard on today is also what's led to paranormal activity too. Yeah. And most of the Marvel totality. Yeah. Dream, and why we even dream have warriors, a podcast dream to be warriors. honest with you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know? So, I mean, it's easy. It's picking low-hanging fruit to say, oh, well, they sold out. Yeah. But some of those sellouts, 
led to the Empire Strikes Back. That's totally. Then no, I, I totally, I totally agree with that. But I think it's one of the reasons why I per, like I like an ending like Black Christmas, mm-hmm. where it's just so open ended, mm-hmm. and then uh, like and then something like this that you know gets continued on and over explained to the nth degree. It's just that mystery of like film viewing experience was like I'm good, I'm content, I'm satisfied. I don't need another page to this book type of mentality. Right. So before we kind of wrap up, I just want to share just a few little anecdotes. Christopher Lee passed on the role of Donald Pleasant or uh, Sam Loomis. Oh, wow. And in years past, he he said that was the biggest regret of his career because he saw that thing take off. Yeah. And that's that that character is pretty Christopher Lee as well. You know what I mean? Like or. Oh God! What's the guy I'm trying to think of? Um, oh, go keep going. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But uh, Carpenter was received ten thousand dollars. Yeah. Christopher Walken. There you go. Could have done it too. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Carpenter received ten thousand for directing, writing, and scoring. Talk about a fee, huh? No like it's nothing. And but did negotiate for ten percent of any film profits, which. If there's going to be profits, yeah, maybe they didn't know. Mm-hmm. Seventy million dollars—that's that's seven seven million dollar bonus check right there. And Good anytime job. they use this theme, anytime they they have to credit him, like he gets a little something in the mail. So, mm-hmm. uh, very, very very interesting. And then I think they all had an interesting experience with the release of this film because what people need to understand about seventies Hollywood versus today is they didn't release it like nationwide all at once. Which is kind of ridiculous now because now you have like the op- your first weekend and then hope you, your film better has... Better win or come in second, otherwise you're out. Yeah, you hope your film has legs, that way it can continue. They used to start films in like two or three cities mm-hmm. and then let it kind of expand across the U.S. So they actually started in Kansas City, Missouri. It played pretty well there, but then it, it kind of wasn't finding its legs. And then The Village Voice... Gave the film like a glorying review, and everyone was like, "Wait a minute! Like maybe there's something, something here." Ah. And then it started across America. So it just started picking up little by little. Word of mouth, much like Paranormal Activity and Blair Witch Project, kind of set the standard of like, "No, you need to go check this out. There's there's something there." Mm-hmm. Um, to kind of reappraise the film, and that might be the one argument for the defense of the cult status that this movie took on. So yeah, that might be the one. Okay, cult, cult, yeah. in, cult in 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 release. I so, see. That's called grassroots, but okay. Whatever. So it's so fascinating too, because when you hear Carpenter talk and everything, they they had moved on. Mm-hmm. A film had come out. It did so so. They thought it had bombed. They were on to whatever next project they could get off the ground. They're like, no, John. Like this thing's making a lot of money, and it's just like, oh my god. Like then it became a thing, and then but like we said, that gave him that that room to play with in in Hollywood. So. It's a very fascinating story. We could go into the sequels, but we'll save that conversation for another day. Yeah. Because it's interesting to say the least. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think time now more than ever. Let's rate Halloween. We have Rock Gut, uh, Well, Call, Single Barrel, and Top Shelf. I'll let you go first, Matt. Uh, watching this in relation to the prior two weeks films has, I think, elevated... What I really liked in this movie Mm -hmm. to an even higher level. Mm -hmm. I think slasher horror is a very notable and important genre in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And there's no question this is the best of the entire genre for me. That being said, Mm -hmm. 
obviously then it can't be worse if it's the best of a defining genre single barrel. Yeah. But then you start looking at in the totality of horror Mm -hmm. what this movie is. And it's so smart and so well crafted. And Carpenter is in such control of the story he wants to tell. When stories are told well, there's a subtleness to me that poses questions. But if you dig deep enough, you can find answers. Mm -hmm. And this has both of that for me. It makes it... As far as horror goes, maybe one of the th- three to five best ever. Yeah. So top shelf, top shelf, top shelf. Like I know what hollowed ground this film has for you, so yeah. I won't try to. Yeah. It, it's it's pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, top shelf plus. Yeah. One of the all timers in the genre of horror. Mm-hmm. The best of the specified genre within the genre. Yeah. Uh, there you go. I just have the, to, is it the Shawshank of horror? It's close. Could be. Yeah. It's close. Yeah. I just have to say it was it was a lot of fun because I've talked about this film for like a decade and and some years with you. Plus, yeah, we've never sat down to like watch it together. So I know. All, all week long, yeah. I looked forward to this with you. This was good. This 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 was fun. Like to just kind of sit and just kind of like just kind of like watch us both kind of like see what we see in the film, which is very fascinating. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, one of the things I want to say, um, there's no s- surprise here how important this film is to me. It's getting a top shelf rating. But it's the, like I said, it's, I have a top shelf and then there's a top shelf below that shelf. This one's the king that rules over all of my top shelf for a couple reasons. Uh, it was also, it was my first discovery into horror. I had had that buddy growing up that showed me some stuff and that piqued my interest. But this was the first one I ever bought. I convinced my mom to buy it for me at Best Buy or Target or wherever. And I just, I listened to all the commentaries. I watched the film, all the features, the TV spots, the radio spots on these discs. And I was just like, wow, they were able to do all that. They had nothing. They had like a crew of 20 people, 20 day shoot. Reusable leaves. Reusable leaves that they're raking up, like light dimmers, pleasants for four days, four to five days. Nothing. The film had nothing. Um, the only more nothing than this one that became something was Evil Dead, and that's another story for another day. Mm-hmm. But I was like, man, I want to do this. This is this is my calling. This is what I want to do. Like, and then this is where I learned, like, looked at John Carpenter as an inspiration, and then I had to see everything else he made because he was directing everything, writing everything, scoring, scoring everything. <laughs> yeah. His fingerprint. You know, you get a Spielberg, and he directs, and that's kind of what he does. Carpenter's fingerprints on his films are so evident and you know when you're watching one of his films that he's such in control of everything because music sets tone, writing sets pace, and directing sets staging. Well said. This is your film. This is your baby. And I was like, I want to do that. Like, this is what I want to do. So that made me, I started writing my own stuff. I started directing little short films. I even, music, you know, I'm a music guy. Yes. Play piano. They used to set up pianos at Costco, which people across the U.S. probably know what Costco is, wholesale store. And I would jump on that piano in Costco, and I would play the Halloween theme. And really? my parents would be shopping in the aisles, and they would know I was on the piano because they knew I loved this film so much. Wow. I was probably creeping everyone out in That's Costco. That's awesome. Yeah. I can play the score on the piano verbatim. I can play along to the movie if we really wanted to. That's so cool. I don't know who would want to sit through that, but... I wanted to score my own films. So, like, in college, like, I, 
I, I wanted to just learn what I learned on this and apply it to my own type of film mentality. So that influence alone, you can tell how important it is to me. And I know film school can provide a lot of benefits. It can provide some feet in the door for some wherever you go. Yeah. And that's all well and great. I have a film degree and, 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 and whatnot, but I don't think there's a better film school than kind of sitting down with this film and seeing what you can do on the cheap with nothing, with an idea, and just kind of with like a group of friends, which is what Carpenter used to just go make something. But if you truly believe what you're doing, you can make films like this. And there's not a there, there's there's a reason why they made uh, nine other sequels uh, or eight uh, seven other sequels, uh, two re, a remake and a sequel to the remake, and then a reboot that ignores everything. It, there's something here in this film. Yeah. So. Man, I, Carpenter's always been my favorite director. I, we got to do a Carpenter cast one day. We got to we got to talk about the thing. We got to do Big Trouble. Sure. We got to do Escape from New York. Christine, even mm-hmm. even they live. Starman, like do I get, the guy's got a great filmography. Vampires? <laughs> Maybe not. Why not? <laughs> what what happened? Yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah, what happened to the to the yeah. man too? And I honestly think he just he didn't have the passion for it anymore. Get old and get tired. If you if you ever listen to him talk, he's the most brutally honest like person like talking to. He's he's gone on record saying, yeah, the fog was like it is what it is. Like it made us a buck. Like, but like there's it's nothing more than that to him. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He's not waxing poetically about the fog like something mm-hmm. else. So it's the tippy top shelf. I'm glad we got to cover this in this cask. Um, we got to start the podcast with Unbreakable, and I know how insurmountably important that film is for you well this this yeah. is this is that one for me yeah so i think we'll get to some of the other ones as we go along but i'm glad my voice was here because alien was a sure kind of letdown for myself at least you know what's so cool for me yeah. is as much as this movie plays on it could happen to you and the everyman idea mm-hmm. the way that it was made for you also plays on yeah you can do this it's the independent film movement before the boom in the early nineties. How impactful that is, mm-hmm. Jesse! Like yeah. I don't want to say anything more because it's that's that's your moment, and I yeah. want you to be in it. And yeah. God bless you for that. Yeah. Um, I'm just gonna raise it up to John Carpenter on this one. Amen. And I'm glad that he changed your life. Excellent. That's fucking awesome. I met him 15 years ago. I, I was told there was nothing left, no reason, no uh, conscience, no understanding, and even the most rudimentary sense of life or death. Good or evil, right or wrong. I met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. Let's wrap up with a a nightcap. And this was one you were going to tell me during last week's episode. So I'll let you set the stage for this. So with the three final girls that survived from Nightmare Halloween and and Friday the 13th, Mm -hmm. In a slasher horror set in 2019, Mm -hmm. I'm curious to think with what you know about the backstory in each one of those three girls, Mm -hmm. which of the three would most likely be the final girl in a slasher horror set today? So Mm -hmm. I guess I'm sort of questioning horror in relation to social context and who is the most socially woke or whatever of the girls. So um, do you want to rank them or do you just want to go, this is the winner? I'll just go with this is the winner. Okay. This was a hard conversation because there was at a point during the week when I was like, 
Alice from Friday the 13th. And oh, I, yeah. And I, and I was like, yeah, she's really good at, like, defending herself. And she, like, give Miss Voorhees a run for her money. And actually, the only one to truly deal a death blow to the villain. Right. So, turning your back's not a, on the creature's not a death blow to, to the villain. <laughs> do, do we both have Heather Langenkamp as number three? I don't. Or... or or like the, the the least likely to survive of the three, maybe. But she was good too at <laughs> her survival instincts. Yeah, I don't know. Like, yeah, just she had she, Heather Langenkamp had a lot going like against her. Mm-hmm. Drunk mother, uh, dead friends, uh, rod iron on the thing. You can't even <laughs> sleep. Like falling asleep in the bathtub. Like she had a lot like to to, to deal with. If I had to pick one, maybe we're gonna pick the same one. I gotta pick Laurie Strode from Halloween. Um, primarily, and then it was more jarring watching it now too, seeing how conser- I like that word conservative and like just like in her yeah. appearances sake and her personality that uh, she's just so disconnected with those around her and her maturity might be good on like a different level, but a maturity on sexually is so low. Um, I think that's a good advantage for her. But then she, this kind of motherly instinct she takes on with the uh, Tommy Doyle and Lindsay Wallace, I think is very important. We've never had kids in danger in any of these films yet. Yeah. I mean, young kids. So I think she 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 goes into full survival mode once she's um, like on her turf. Uh, whereas Alice kind of waxes around, like running from set to set, like not knowing what to do and. Heather Langenkamp like needs still needs dad to come like and the authorities and even they don't even really dispose of Freddy properly in that. Right. I, it has to be her to that extent. And can I just say real quick, one of the things I really enjoyed about Halloween 2018 uh, that I've been dying to see in a slasher, especially or horror film, but especially slasher film is the repercussions of such a traumatic event on an individual. We see so many of these films, and I watch them, and I'm like, how in the Texas Chainsaw, how would that person be a smidge normal after going through an event like that? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, how do you go through such an experience and just be like, yeah, I'm good. I'm just going to go live my life and get a job. Like, I think in that film, I think we see it. It's like she's turned into Loomis almost. Yes. Like, extreme to the nth degree, like doomsday Pushed by Michael to the place of obsession to insanity yeah. well said other than like sydney prescott and like scream three we've never uh, really we've never seen that like it's good played out so again i gotta give her a little kudos for that but i think she i think she'd do fine at the end of the day and to say loomis saved her is one thing but loomis didn't save her because he got away anyway so right yeah <laughs> which showed up for a minute and helped her yeah uh okay good cool yeah uh i think evaluating it today sort of looks at the genre of horror today and what I think you and I both enjoy, which is kind of the social horror that we're sort of trying to figure out. Yeah. It's been done before. Mm-hmm. Um, we can say Stepford Wives. We can say Invasion of the Body Snatchers. We've seen it done before. Mm-hmm. Um, but today's version of that, I think, is is quite an interesting conversation. And let me give you... This is a weird answer, but I'll just try to stay with me yeah, as best you can. Go People ahead. may just shut this off right now. No. I'm going to give you... Hitty Johnson and His Girl Friday, played by Rosalind Russell, is number three. Okay. I'm going to give you Stella Dallas, played by Barbara Stanwyck. Okay. And Stella Dallas is number two. Okay. And I'm going to give you Mildred Pierce, played by Joan Crawford, and Mildred Pierce is number one. Okay. As that legacy of women in domestic films, sort of, yeah. 
kind of plays out. Heather Langenkamp is the Rosalind Russell of the okay. three for me. <laughs> okay. Which is capable, yeah, certainly yeah. capable to Cary Grant. Yeah. But entirely too dependent on Daddy to save her in that film. Yeah. Even though she's able to ante up and at the end of the day mm-hmm. recognize Daddy and Johnny Depp aren't worth a damn and, and sort of pull myself up by the bootstraps. Yeah. Stella Dallas in that film and all of the domestic issues that she tackles and I think one of the many and I hope someday we maybe do a Stanwyck cast because oh, yeah. I love her mm-hmm. uh, um, from the umbilical cord that gets cut at the end and that the, the metaphor of that that to me is Friday the 13th okay close yeah and then the most capable all of them is Joan Crawford and Mildred Pierce and the lengths that she has to go through. My answer is the same as yours. It's Laurie Strode. Mm-hmm. Um, for everything that Jamie Lee Curtis is on and off screen, agreeable and disagreeable in many different ways to me, yeah. the Laurie Strode character mm-hmm. and where her strength come from comes from isn't based on any objectivity it's based on intelligence and resourcefulness and diligence yeah she just says i'm gonna see this through with you you're gonna be safe i got you yeah and by god she keeps her word yeah and i don't think that theme has changed yeah from 1978 yeah to 2019 yeah and so we both agree it's Lori. i think instinct too uh, Nancy had time to set up her home alone house. Uh, Lori's just like, oh my god, what, what do I got in front of me? I gotta like do something. Like I'm from the, a sh- making a shiv out of a, a thing. Like yeah. I couldn't think like that. Right. So no, I think that's a good trait. Is it weird to say again? And obviously, yeah. as not a female, I probably shouldn't even say this. But is it weird for me to say like I think as far as female characters as heroes in film go? Yeah. Laurie Strode is uh, sinfully yeah. neglected in that discussion. I think she should be up there yeah, with me like too. the Ellen Ripley's of the world. Really good, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we talk about some certain ones here and there. Yeah. But man, Laurie Strode is awesome. Yeah. And still even awesome up to mm-hmm. the failures of the Halloween franchise in some regards. Yeah. To, I think, the success and the reboot that we have. Yeah. Please, God, don't kill her off in the number two and number three that are coming. Yeah. Let's see what happens with Laurie Strode because she's just been great. Yeah, that'll be awesome. This has been a blast, Matt. You know how much I love these slasher films. We'll have to get obscure one of these years with like The Burning and Happy Birthday to Me and Prom Night and really get yeah. into the deeper cuts. Yeah. And kind of just see how like the formula is just like to a T. Mm-hmm. But it's been fun to talk about these starters and these big franchises. The big three, we'll call it that. Sure. Uh, yeah, it's been fun. So I want to cheers. Cheers. Sean Cunningham, Wes Craven, and Mr. Carpenter for, man, just giving us some great characters, some great films and thank you for defining horror for a decade yeah. in what was a genre that was pretty unfinancially successful at the beginning yeah what is that 40 years we're still talking about all of these films right you know what i mean right. like they didn't like go away like a lot of films are speaking of which i saw two films it was like the shittiest movie night ever men in black international yeah and followed that up with dark phoenix oh my god holy christ like that was Do you a- need therapy I need like yeah someone to talk me through just Oof. how bad those films were, but like that's you, can I say Dark Phoenix? Didn't you feel like at the end of that film that was them just throwing a middle finger to all of Marvel and and comicdom saying 
here's what I think and yeah. none of the history matters and all the things you liked about the X-Men are gone and we're out and here's like it was such a like a vindictive piece to its viewers. It's just like no one cared. And oh. I love like all those actors in that the, that that film and it was just like just putting the like horse out to pasture and just shooting him in the, in the field cuz like good god is that worse than Trank's final four? That's bad. What we do? <laughs> that's I don't know. That's a hard question. Which it, shit would I rather sit through? I don't know. That movie's the Fantastic Four is really bad. I think the totality of the X Men and how they finished it off with as they left Fox leaving, giving it to Universal, the middle finger that they threw makes it worse than the Fantastic Four. Mm-hmm. The movies are both shitty. Yeah, but. Man, I wish I could take you to the viewing. My <clears throat> wife loves the X-Men. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, Jesse. Yeah. She was absolutely beside herself at the end. She was she loves Hugh Jackman for a lot of reasons. Yeah. And all and I mean all of them. <laughs> I could never be Hugh Jackman to her. But I'll try. Right. There you go. And she was furious when we left that film. Yeah, it's just it's not a complete film. It's just like such a slice of shit. <laughs> um oh God. But okay, so I gotta let me pull that back. Okay, two shit films, big budget films. Yeah. We're going to forget about them as quickly as the the, the, the sunsets. Mm-hmm. Not these ones. So there's something to that. Amen. Amen to that. Wanna pre- you want to tease out the next game? Yeah, let's tease what we, got, Go what we got going on. So we're going to get out of horror for a bit. We've spent two months in there. It's been a fun journey. Wait, but- do you hear a collective sigh of relief from the listeners? Let's listen. Sounds like Michael Myers' erotic breathing. You guys are weirdos, man. I kind of didn't hear it. Maybe they love horror. (laughs) But uh, we're going to take a step back. we got some big shit coming out the next couple weeks. Uh, uh, Maybe a little tale from a galaxy far, far away coming up uh, on the horizon. Yeah. Uh, But we're going to kind of stick in the realm of a film coming out at the end of November. I think Thanksgiving uh, Wednesday or weekend called Knives Out. Yeah. Directed by Ryan Johnson, who directed Last Jedi all-star cast Mm -hmm. and the buzz has been like amazing cool so uh, it's like a classic clue whodunit so we're gonna stay in the realm of whodunit but the way we're defying whodunit is kind of like a mystery of sorts yeah so it won't be a typical like clue like colonel mustard got to figure out who killed someone with the with the brass pipe it's gonna be there's a mystery that needs to be solved whether it's a kidnapping or an assassination or in our first film a murder and we're going classic with this one we haven't done this too often we're going with a shot in the dark uh from blake edwards peter sellers you'll recognize it this is the second film in the pink panther franchise i'm excited to talk about this one like matt like as a, a kid in elementary school what a weirdo i was like I would get excited about like Friday because we'd go rent movies and I'd be like, can we go rent the Pink Panther? And like, what 10 year old in the 90s is saying, I want to go rent the Pink Panther films from the movie theater or from the video store? So maybe one who recognizes Peter Sellers. Yes. Oh, man. A genius of comedy. Can't wait. So I have a question for you. Yes. Um, The way we did Halloween this week, do you want to do a shot in the dark together? I mean, we've probably both seen that movie 20 times. Do you want to do it together next week? Yeah, and and then also it's uh, current. For those that haven't seen it, I know this one's a little obscure compared to these films. It's currently streaming on Amazon Prime right now. Oh, my God. Go now. Check it out so you can know what the hell we're talking about. I think we're going to have a lot of fun talking about this one. So let's call this cask next week instead of who done it. We talk about it. Mm Mm-hmm. Because I think the whodunit is um, a little bit more expansive than traditional Agatha Christie kind of thing. Yeah. So we'll call it. We talk about it. So it gives us a little bit of play. Mm -hmm. It doesn't tie us into. I think this is going to be a cool cask. 
and there's the possibility for um, a single kind of entry. Yeah, here there's in a the small batch film small coming batch out coming. coming out next week that needs to be talked about. So, uh, who done it with a small batch entry? Um, all we'll tell you for the beginning is we'll start off with a shot in the dark, mm-hmm. and um, you the- all sh- you know we, we always talk about see the film after the podcast. This week, see the film before the podcast. You all have already seen Halloween. You got mm-hmm. some time on your hands, yeah. I guess. You just spent an hour and 50 minutes with us. Yeah. Go watch A Shot in the Dark. Yeah. It's check, like 95 minutes. Yeah. Check it out. Uh, yeah. There's, there's the stuff in the middle of this cask is awesome, to awesome. say the least. So, And it's stuff that I think is fairly underrated in film discussion. So can't wait to discuss it. So cheers, Matt. Cheers, Jesse. Cheers. I got to get going. I got to go to Costco for a Halloween party. I hope they have a piano there because I'm going to scare everyone in that Costco. Do you know any place where I can find a nice William Shatner mask from Star Trek? (laughs) William Shatner. (laughs) Looks nothing like him. What are you doing? What are you doing, Hollywood mask makers? Excellent. We'll see you all next week. Everybody, have a fantastic week. We'll see you in the dark. And happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to stay in the know for future episodes. And be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, Stitcher, and leave us an email at rysmileproductions at gmail.com. Halloween is property of Compass International Pictures, Falcon International Productions, and Aquarius Releasing, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. What's the boogeyman? As a matter of fact, it was.